Welcome to MLR Kickoff with your hosts, Dan Power and Pete Steinberg. Well, Pete, we made it. 12 weeks in the book. We have our first ever MLR champion, the Seattle Seawolves. They got it done over the Glendale Raptors on the weekend. And not for the last time this year, I'm going to throw to you, though, for our travel tip of the week. How did you go? I know you had a trip out to the East Coast this weekend. This I week, did, sorry. I, I did. I, I had a trip out to the East Coast. I was in New York for a few days um, working with a client. And my travel tip of the week is that when you travel um, as much as I do for work, you have to make sure that you um, spend some time doing some things for fun. So often you'll find yourself a little bit, Dan, as, as you know, both as a businessman, but also as a rugby player, when you travel, you get to see either the hotel and your client's office, or you get to see the hotel and the pitch and the gym and the pool, and that's it. So making sure that you do something. So what I did was I caught up with Kim McGuini, a former um, USA Women's Eagle and captain of the US Women, uh, went to the uh, 2010 World Cup and had a wonderful dinner at the Bobby Flay restaurant in New York. I didn't know who Bobby Flay was, but he was there right in the front of the restaurant when we came in. Yeah, he, uh, he cooks a mean steak, old Bobby Flay. So he probably uh, was thinking the same thing when you walked in. He goes, that's uh, CBS analyst Pete Steinberg right there. I can't believe he's in my restaurant and uh, you got the special. Yeah, I, it was uh, the, the food there was absolutely fabulous, and it was great to catch up with uh, Kim. And then we walked down to Little Italy and got some gelato. But that was all after the Seawolves pulled off the upset and beat the Glendale Raptors down in San Diego. And what a what a great event! I mean, I just it was just such a wonderful event. The crowd was into it. The broadcast was great. Everyone, so many people worked hard. Matt Hawkins and his team just did a phenomenal job at pulling all of that together and i'm not sure dan that i will ever forget stacy pates pulling together 35 delirious seawolves and trying to get them ready for the broadcast but she did it uh, she's got a uh, future in the old lasso at the rodeo if she wants she did good uh driving the cattle into the right pen there at the end uh but we uh well you amongst your very busy work schedule, had a chance to catch up with some of the Seawolves, starting with their inside centre and longtime USA rugby player, Shalom Sunula. All right, we are with Shalom Sunula, who is in Connecticut running a USA rugby academy camp. Um, Shalom, thank you for joining us. No, thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me on. Um, now, you know, you're out there running, um, coaching one of these uh, USA Rugby Academy camps. Tell us what your role is outside of the Seawolves. There are some that are full-time professionals and there are others like you that are able to kind of match other jobs. So what else do you do? Yeah, so there's two. There's those who do rugby full-time um, and, and then there are those who still manage and juggle part-time jobs, full-time jobs. And for me personally, I work with Adivis. We do a lot of coach development stuff throughout the country with the game growing at a fast pace. And then the other side of that is with the player development side of things. And in this case, we're at a camp in Fairfield, Connecticut on the East Coast 
with more than uh, 50 athletes from around the country uh, just willing to get the ball in hand. And uh, they're excited about the opportunities ahead with them with the MLR. You've got the World Cup around the corner. A lot of them want to go to the World Cups, Olympic and or college, rugby. There's so many different goals out there and uh, it's just really neat to see. Well, it's great that you're, you're sort of out there developing your coaching skills. And obviously one of the early stories of the Seawolves was the loss of Tony Healy as a coach and the step up of Phil Mack as player coach. Tell us a little bit about what that transition was like and what were some of the challenges. Yeah, definitely not an easy thing. Uh, when we first heard the news with Tony Healy stepping down for whatever reason, it, it just wasn't easy to, to take in all at the same time as... We were wondering what's next, and obviously what was next was, uh, are we going to get a coach, or is, 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 is Phil Mack really going to step up and take this? And what happened was, because of the position we are in and the circumstance he was given, uh, he just had to step up to the plate. And so it was literally about it was about what we can control and what we can't control. And we're very fortunate to have enough maturity in the team to be able to manage the situation um, and kind of give Phil that support so that he can try and do the best that he can do, uh, again, given the circumstances he was in. So, you know, one of the things that's true of the Seawolves is there's a strong um, Canadian component and um, a strong USA component, right? So, um, yep. as, and, and you've, you know, Phil has referenced several times the number of times he's played against you, and you've probably played against um, Ray Barkwell a number of times. What was that like working against sort of the traditional enemy of USA? Yeah, that was actually one of the small banters within the team that got us through the season, right? You got to have fun throughout the season. I thought culturally and in the environment that we had, it was it was actually quite healthy and quite a fun one to be in. Um, obviously, we've gone against each other, especially Phil on the uh, on the seven series. He's He's got large amount of caps with the sevens team and and the fifteen. So we've we've had some fierce battles with those Canadians. Uh, Phil Ray leading the front there, and uh, it's uh, the dynamics at training were fun. We were, there, was, there was some good banter going on, and then a couple of the other guys, the other foreigners from other country, and the locals. Uh, you know, they didn't really help, and they were adding to the equation and uh, <laughs> just stirring things up. So it was it was pretty fun from the day to day basis, if that makes sense. Tell us a little bit what it was like at practice when you have a player coach. I mean, was Phil coaching? Was he playing? Like, who was? How was? It, how are things being managed? That sounds like it's quite a difficult dynamic. It was. It was something a bit different. And uh, at trainings, obviously, we'll, they'll uh, they'll set up the exercises, set up the games, and obviously the part that we were missing at training um, was just a voice to be able to. They did a bit of both was the short answer to it. So they, 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 they taught a little bit and then Phil almost jumped into it. And then challenge of that is, is, is there's no one really there to keep the standards and uh, drive the standards and manage the session. So that was the challenging part when Phil ran both sides. So it wasn't all gravy, but uh, that was the challenging side of things. Now, you know, Seattle is one of the older teams in the league. I mean, there were eight starters over 30 um, and the average age was almost 30 of the starting lineup in the final. Um, but Phil has referenced the number of times that the way the team got through the season was by leaning on the senior players. How did, how did Phil leverage um, players like you um, and Matt Turner and Tim Metcher and those senior players throughout the season to help the team function? Yeah, that's a great question, Pete. Um, I've been in this uh, player-coach situation before, and it didn't really turn out uh, to flash. So in this this time around, what Phil 
did really well this time was actually really genuinely lent on the senior players. So he did that by a lot of homework off the field. And I thought that's what we did really well um, uh, in the environment that we had was just making sure that when we were on the field, that we were efficient with our time on there, the volume and all of that, all of that put together so that we could make sure that we, uh, the boys knew where the, what the message was, what we we're trying to achieve and going out there and, uh, and making sure that we uh, had metrics to, um, to execution. That's great. So as you guys went through the season, um, you know, you led with a great defense, a dominant scrum, some opportunities. They struggled without you, Shalom. I, I noticed that when you weren't there with your leadership. But talk, about, talk a little bit about going into the final and having lost to Glendale twice and what you did to win the third game. What were some of the keys that you had coming into that game and um, how did you do against those keys? Yeah, some key points was definitely on the defensive side of things. Our tackle year hasn't been that bad. And so what we said to ourselves that week was, let's improve our defense side of things. Glendale, have a, uh, it's a well-oiled machine. We've got to get off our line first and foremost. So get our spacing right. We've got to get off our line and we've got to make good contact. Our first up contact has got to be good and we've got to apply pressure to their key players. Now they've got really, really good decision makers like Will Maggie, world-class players. And up front you've got uh, you've got John Quill, ball, good ball carrier. You've got guys like Ben Landry, Zach Manolo, world-class players. And so if we're able to apply the right amount of pressure and dictate their attack uh, through our defense, uh, we knew we were going to come out on top. And I literally felt like we had them uh, within the first water break, uh, that 20-minute mark. We felt very happy with the way we were going up. They scored their try through a driving mall. We just said, if we fix that department up... Um, we're able to uh, apply pressure and bring them back inside. And I thought it allowed it, when they started kicking and putting up and unders on, on the ends, we knew we had them because they couldn't come through us. And, and how much um, video work of Glendale did you do going into the game? Did you identify um, patterns that they had or was it much more about your structure and your ability to stop them as opposed to what they were doing? I think everybody played similarly throughout the year. It was about what options do they what are their tendencies? What are their options if they do what? What are their reactions if defences give them what? And so we knew that in game one and two, we let them run at us. They Their attack dictated what we did on D. And so that whole week was about how do we turn that around? We've got to dictate what they do. And that means getting off the line and forcing their ball players to play options they don't want to play and then capitalising on that. Up. Looking at the season, who were some of the players that really stepped up and did well and surprised you for the Seawolves? Well, Billy, obviously, he's the biggest. He's a headline right now. Billy, uh, straight out of Central Washington. He wasn't really on the on the highlights in, in terms of uh, national team scale. And throughout the season, oh, my gosh, he's progressed the fastest. And uh, to his credit, he's rewarded himself with a cap against Canada in the June series. And that's a testament to all the hard work that he's put in behind the scenes. Well, that's great, Shalom. Thank you so much for your time. Um, congratulations on being the first inaugural Major League Rugby champion and being the captain of that team. Um, and uh, good luck with the rest of your camp. I hope you find some future Seawolves out there. <laughs> Thanks, Pete, for your time, mate. And you really enjoyed it.
Great stuff there from Shalom. And not surprisingly, Pete, he heaped praise at the end there on the next gentleman you caught up with, one of the most exciting young players coming through the ranks in USA Rugby, and that is Vili Tolitahu, the open side flanker for Seattle. It, it, um, he did. And, you know, I think it's been one of the best stories of the season for Major League Rugby and bodes so well for the US Eagles. You and I, Dan, were there for his first game when he came off the bench. And he was a bench player for Seattle. And it was great to catch up with him and hear a little of his story. And what a just wonderfully kind um, and interesting guy he was. Well, let's hear from Billy and Pete Steinberg right now. Well, thank you um, for joining us. This is Billy Tolatau. How did I do, Billy? That was perfect. That was good. I, I have to admit that I know I did the first um, ever Seattle Seawolves game and butchered your name every time. So um, I've, I've been working on it. Can you say it for us just to make sure that everyone can hear it from the uh, from the original man himself? Yeah, uh, there you go. So not bad, not bad. Well, you know, thanks for joining us on um, the Major League Rugby kickoff. Uh, first of all, congratulations on being the Championship Series MVP. Um, were you, you know, what was it like when you heard your name called out as the uh, MVP of the uh, semifinals and final? Uh, yeah, honestly, I didn't even think it was going to be me. Uh, I feel like it could have been anybody. And uh, I was pretty shocked that uh, when they called me, I called my name as the MVP and uh, just a uh, blessing on from there. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, where did you grow up? When did you start playing rugby? Uh, yeah, I just, I grew up loving the sport of football. And uh, from there, uh, when I was young, I just couldn't uh, make a wait for Pop Warner. So then I followed my brother around up to uh, uh, the local club, Kahului Warriors. And uh, it was just a bunch of men in uh, my freshman year of high school. That's when I tagged along with my brother, uh, Samuel Atoltau, and just went on to play touch with them. And I started off as their water boy. And uh, as I grew older, then they needed more guys because we didn't have the numbers to make a team. So they threw me out at wing out of when I was a sophomore for like 15, 16 years old. And uh, from there, I just loved the, the game and um Felt more that uh, I loved rugby more than football and uh, decided to pursue that that dream. And, yeah, I just got the opportunity to uh, show my talent out to uh, the high school coaches. And from there, I just continued on to college and U20s and collegiates and out to the Falcons. and. Um, that's where I got uh, notice for go to college here at Central Washington and got a degree in construction management and just working my way up to here to Seawolves and finally capped as an eagle. The American dream, right? You tagged along with your brother, um, was thinking about football, decided to go rugby, and then it's just been one step after another. When you, when you look back, um, what were some of the most memorable moments you've had in rugby throughout your career? Uh, it's just making friends, honestly. So uh, 
I've got a lot out there on Facebook that I still uh, contact in, and some has uh, went on to play soccer, and some are all, the, all playing out of uh, out at sea. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just making new friends. I'm always looking forward to meeting new guys, where they come from, and uh, their personality. Other than that, I just love playing rugby just to meet new guys. And uh, winning, winning game is just a bonus upon that. So this season, you started off as a student at Central Washington. And you and John Hayden would drive to practice together? Is yeah. that what happened? Yeah. Tell, us, tell us what that was like. Oh, it was, at first, it was a bit of a long drive until two hours came like a 10-minute drive. But um, it, was a, it was a sacrifice to make, but we made things work. And it, it was worth it in the long run. And sometimes uh, John Hayden would have exams the next day, so that I would have to drive so he can study and vice versa. But if we both have uh, exams the next day, then he would drive one way and I would drive the other. And uh, we would pack we would pack sandwiches. Uh, he would make his own sandwich. I would make my own. And on our drive back, we would have dinner and we would uh, try to guess well, what sandwiches we <laughs> made for each other. And uh, yeah, it worked out really well. Well, that sounds like, sounds like a great story. One of those stories when they made the movie video yeah. about your rugby life. Like the, the making the brotherhood road trips, right? So yeah. um, together, and and you know, obviously it must. You know, you um, you were making that trip twice a week, right? Yeah, two to three, sometimes four times a week when wow. uh, when they're playing home games. But uh, then, she would take care of us, and uh, if we have home games, they would get us uh, like a hotel, so we don't have to make the drive back and forth. And, um, you know, I, I remember watching you play for the first time um, for the Seawolves. I actually think you came off the bench in that game, right? Yeah, yeah. Then you came off the bench and uh, had a huge impact and you like to get your nose in at the tackle contest. What's your favorite thing to do in rugby? In rugby is uh, just being a menace around the breakdown, slowing, slowing uh, the ball and defense uh, so we can get up and uh reset before they they get ready and attack. Yeah, and, that, and that's obvious when we watch you play because at, at every breakdown you're like a classic seven where you're trying to get the hands on the opposition ball or you're trying to contest and you can you, you just put your body on the line so that was obvious from the very first moment that you you stepped in um and then you you know became a starter and then got the call up for the u.s so um how did that happen did you get a phone call did you get an email and uh, who who was your first phone call to? Um, for first phone call to tell? Yeah, to tell. Oh, yeah. Um, when I, I got the call, I think it was going into uh, our Austin game. It was or our Houston game saying I joined them up in Colorado, and I got it from Sean Pittman. Sean Pittman called me, and I asked if uh, how would it feel to join, and then, I was going into our finals week of school, so I was like, oh, man, this is my only chance. Uh, should I sacrifice this chance to go and work things out with my professors? And they worked out well. So when I got that call, my first phone call was uh, actually my brother called me. <laughs> I didn't really tell anybody yet because I was still trying to figure out what to do. And when my brother called me, 
I told him about it, and then he was uh, just asking, oh, what about the rest of the Seawolf season? And then uh, I told him I'll be joining them back with the, in the postseason for uh, semis and hopefully finals. But, yeah, my brother was really excited for that and congratulated me. And uh, other than that, uh, I just tried. I was My mind was set to finish school first before I could move on. And then once I got that done, um, everything was strictly rugby. Yeah, it was a blessing. Well, the timing was pretty much perfect, right? It was your last finals week. You could get your exams done. You could graduate. It was like a week later might have been better, but it was it was pretty close. I I went down and watched um, you train with the Eagles down in Glendale, and there was uh, um, one. Uh, I think it was like a ninety minute session, and it was all about counter attacks, and um, it was like a hundred degrees at altitude. And all the forwards were just running and running. I mean, I think it was a conditioning session hidden into a rugby game. Do you remember that session? Um, it's probably actually, like a lot of the sessions that Gary Gold's running. Yeah. I, was, I was I was watching watching you, and you were working so hard to keep up. So the first cup, you know, what was it? What was the difference from your first day at the Eagles to the like moment you stepped on the pitch and got your first cap? Like for you, what was your journey there? Um, I, I, my journey there was, uh, uh, pretty exciting. I kind of like the way they set things up where they work up towards it from uh, day to day. And, um, it's just pretty much a competition. So I just went out there just to put my skills on the line, see, see what I can help to do. And then when I got the chance, I just went out and just showed my skills, what I learned and. Other than that, I try to. I worried too much about uh, line out calls and stuff, but uh, Olive Kilifi actually helped me out there. He's like, "Don't worry about it. We got these days to to install it in, and we'll go over it." And yeah, with the help of uh, Olive Kilifi, is is a big turnout for me. So, um, you know, you look back on the Seawolf season. Uh, you won um, inaugural Major League Rugby champions. You know, as someone from the inside, what do you think was was the key to your success? What was the what was the special sauce that the Seawolves had that led them to be able to beat Glendale in the final? Um, honestly, it's just a uh, a commitment to our, our uh, defensive seawall and just keeping discipline and playing our own game and not down uh, where we would put ourselves in our in our end, uh, we try to minimize the penalty count to eight or less. And uh, when you, if we get that done, then we'll pull out with the with the win. And uh, I think we pulled that off. It was just uh, keeping a discipline and choosing when to uh, to counter rock and moments like that. Now, now in the final, you had an amazing final. You had so many good plays, but there was one play. <laughs> I think you know what I'm going to talk about, where yeah. the ball's bouncing around on the ground. Um, I don't know if you've been watching any of the Soccer World Cup, but it looked like you were trying to pick that ball up the field. You missed and Glendale scored. And after the game, you talked about how the boys picked you up afterwards. So what was said to you under the posts after yeah. that score that Glendale? Yeah, the guys, the guys uh, told me, um, well, I remember walking back and uh, I remember Matt, Matt Turner told me just fall on it, 
next time just fall on it. He didn't tell me like in an angry voice or anything. He just told me just fall on it. When I got back to the huddle, everybody was just saying uh, the same thing, fall on it. But I heard words here and there saying, uh, you know what, there's still time on the clock. Uh, just forget about that. That's gone. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, just go forward on from here. And uh, um, yeah, just keep on going. But it was those words that it, that uh, kind of filled me up. And it's like, oh, okay, there's still time on the clock and we, there's still time to score. From there on, uh, I knew the, the boys had my back, so I had to I had to owe them one. And and you did, you know, you created the break that created one of the tries, right? So that was a really great play. So, you know, you've come to the end of a long season. Um, you would go from being, you know, a sub for the Seawolves to an Eagle and then the MVP of the championship series. What's next for you? What's next in the summer for you? Are you taking time off? Are you um, Yeah. Um you gonna play sevens? I'm not sure that you're a sevens player, but do you like do you play sevens? I played I played sevens uh in uh college, but uh at the weight I am now I gotta I'm gonna take this time off and uh try to lose a a couple pounds here and there. So uh right now I'm just waiting to go back home and uh just have this week off, go back home and uh lose some weight. Hopefully uh I can peak and play at the best of my ability and um, I'm just going to go start work on the 30th with a construction company called Goodfellow Bros <clears throat> and yeah let's see where it goes from there they get to use your degree and, and, and wait to work out what what's left for you right so well you know Vili thank you so much for your time you've been it's it's been a pleasure to watch you play and I think that um you're obviously a rising star in American rugby. You're someone that we all watch um, as you continue to, continue to develop. I know both Phil Mack and uh, Shalom um, Senora speak about how hard you have worked to get where you are today. And so congratulations on that journey. And we look forward to seeing you play next year. Thank you. Thank you. There he is, the young firebrand, the smiling assassin. What a great year he had. Not too sure how he's going to uh, rank this season, getting his first cap as an eagle, but also winning the MLR championship as well. What a, a great year it has been. And we talked a little bit about the game, Pete. Let's dig a little deeper and dissect the performance. Last week's show, we talked about how Seattle would have caused the upsets. And I went back and listened to the show earlier this week, and it was remarkable. All the things that we thought that Seattle had to do, they ticked those boxes and they came away with a four-point win. Yeah, I mean, I thought that this was a great game plan by Seattle. There was there was the um, focus on defense that Shalom talked about in his interview. But one of the interesting things was to hear Phil Mack talk about some of their goals. And he said that they went into the game where they wanted 10 phases of possession of, sorry, 10 possessions with at least six phases. They wanted Glendale to have to tackle them. And they absolutely did that. They had 56% um, of the possession. Glendale had to make 107 tackles to only 87 for the Seawolves. So the fact that they had the edge of possession, I thought was really surprising. It was really key to the game. Yeah, it was. That defense early on did exactly what we thought it was going to do. It got up and flustered the flow and the rhythm of the Raptors' attack early on. 
And even though it was a four-point game and quite close, the Raptors just never really looked like they were their normal selves. And that has to come down to the fact that Seattle just applied the blowtorch to them early, Pete, and never really relented. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting about the Raptors, and I think it's been it'll be a lesson for the team, is that they didn't really have a plan B on their attack. I thought that Seattle, as they have all season, defended the middle of the field they prevented those raptor, raptor forwards from getting go forward and they weren't able to unlock on the outside. It wasn't a lot of creativity there from the Raptors. Um, I think that, uh, I think it was losing Chad London, I think was a loss for them, but they hadn't, they had zero line breaks. And, you know, Will McGee, who's a great fly half, was really resorted to some cross kicks pretty early on in the game. And then when the Raptors didn't get stuff going. I thought they panicked a little bit. There were a couple of passes where they had some opportunities where it went into touch or it didn't get a hand. And handling errors has been a problem for them. And again, they had 14 handling errors. And listen to this, Seattle only had seven. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it certainly is. The control was outstanding throughout the game. Question was whether they could score the points and they uh, they found they found their rhythm with the last game of the year. A couple of great linebacks from the Seawolves. And no surprise that always in the thick of the action was their number eight, Ricard Hatting, who uh, also scored himself a try. We had some question marks over his fitness coming in after a long spell on the sideline, but those were dispelled last, oh, well, I should say two weeks ago in the semifinals, and then he lifted another level on the weekend. Unlucky not to get the MVP, went to uh, Billy Tolitahu for two fantastic games he had. But, uh, you know, looking at Seattle, wow. You know, not too many people would have seen that coming outside of the Pacific Northwest, Pete. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I've, you know, we've done a number of Seattle games and they've always been, you know, you know the way I would put Seattle is they're probably the most difficult team to beat, but they're not always the team that looks like they're going to win. So I think they're extremely difficult to play against. I spoke to Phil Mack on that very first week and, you know, I asked him, Phil, what, you know, what, what's your focus? And he said, we're on a solid set piece. We want to have a really, really physical defense and we want to stick together. And as a coach, as, particularly as a player coach, I think he succeeded there. But I think that there's a challenge for Seattle as, when they, as, as they look to move forward because they're one of the oldest teams in the league. They, their starting lineup in the final averaged a 30. And now Ray Barkwell's 38, so it kind of like makes that difficult. But eight of their starters are over 30. Um, they they don't have the very young players. I mean, I think uh, Vili's one of the younger players. They've, they've got 23 and 24-year-olds, but they don't yet have 20, 21-year-olds. And that's this is all to be expected, right? I mean, I think one of the interesting things that I'm looking at is the teams that had the best rugby foundation pre-MLR are the teams that did the best. So Glendale obviously have existed for a while and were able to build on what was already there. The Seawolves heavily took from the Saracens. I think 13 of the players in the final came from the Seattle Saracens. Um, Utah had a tremendous um, league, that, the insult Lake City that they could pull from. And San Diego had a great domestic, you know, domestic rugby area that they could pull from. Um, and even Austin, even though their relationship with the um, local teams like the Hums isn't as good, Austin has good rugby locally. But you look at Houston and Nola, 
they really had to start from scratch. So I think that the fact that Seattle were older is what allowed them to handle having a player coach, but it also gives them the greatest challenge moving forward. Let's take a little peek moving forward here at the offseason for both sides. We'll start with the runner-up in the Glendale Raptors. Now, you've come up one short in a championship game, so obviously there has to be some sort of changes that come. They don't have to be major, but what are you doing if you're Mark Bullock, Dave Williams, you're sitting down this offseason, you pull out your player list, what changes are you going to make to that side? Yeah, I mean, I think some of this is philosophical. So I think the Raptors play a great structure, but what they don't actually have is a lot of creativity. And I think that probably, I mean, Bryce Campbell's already heading overseas. So I think um, creating uh, someone who's a little bit more of a playmaker to partner up with Chad London in the centers is, is, is what I would do. I think their set pieces is, is good. Um, I think that their defense needs some work. I think um, they're just not consistent enough. And I'm wondering um, about their ability to be physical in back-to-back weeks. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that we have to say is that Glendale really took a beating last week in Utah. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why they struggled. And then they've got, they also have some older players. You know, they've got Peter Dahl. They've got um, Maximo de Archibald that are both in their early 30s who are probably, you know, coming, you know, having some thoughts. You've got Zach Fanolia, who's young enough, but, you know, is a, um, a high riser in striker orthopedics, the uh, the um, worldwide leader in orthopedic parts, right? Good boy. Good. That was outstanding. So, um, and so, you know, they're going to, you know, a lot of this is going to be, oh, Ben Landry is also going overseas. There's going to be some work that has, to, that has to go there on the players, but their player pool is so strong. I think it's philosophically how they attack. I think that what we heard from Dave Williams over and over is about consistency and playing to the pattern. But when the pattern didn't work, I think that they didn't have another option. So I'm, I'm wondering if there might be a little change in how they play the game. Interesting. Yep. I, roster changes, there's nothing that really jumps out to me on that squad that except for these veteran players you talk about. The question is, does Dylan Fawcett go back to New York? Um, you know, he was on the bench behind Finolio. Do those guys get together and say, we're going to go one more year? That's not the way we want to retire on a loss in a championship game. That's going to be something they're going to have to sit down and have a discussion over. And I guess that makes uh, Fawcett's decision up for him, whether or not if Finolio retires, then he's got a choice. Do I stay in Glendale, which is... A great location. So my understanding is, is I spoke to a general manager at the championship, Pete, and those Rooney guys that were put out on loan signed one-year deals. Most of them don't have a deal in place with Rooney at the moment. Yeah. So if they want to stay, that option is there. There was kind of a gentleman's agreement that they would go back, but there's nothing in writing. I know that uh, a couple of the Eagles players are kind of happy where they're at and may not want to go back to New York. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see. Yeah, it's interesting because I I actually had uh, um, a drink with James English, the general manager of Rooney, when I was in New York City, and and they're they're you know they're going to be ready for 2019, but you know they're at the point where they're looking to to create their squad now. It's not been something that has been you know they know the players, and it's funny in New York, great players just turn up, right? Because it's New York and spouses get jobs and things like that. And so they've, they've found an excellent forwards coach who is in New York. Um, 
coach professionally in Japan because his wife got a good job in New York. So I think I think that it will be interesting to see how that New York team is formed. Um, I think there will be some players that 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 do stay um, where they are. And I think, you know, it's hey, it's it's now becoming a marketplace. Right. And so it'll be interesting to see how players can leverage um, their talents within this marketplace. Yeah, now we'll move over. We'll talk a little bit more about Rooney and expansion uh, next week. But Seattle, you've almost, you've already mentioned it. It's really going to come down to age for them. Uh, on the flip side, the Glendale senior players who don't want to retire on a championship loss, how many of those senior players at Seattle are going to say, you know what, that's a pretty good swan song to my career, and they're going to call it a day. Shane Skinner uh, and uh, Mr. Belfour up there, a, do you find a coach? Do you bring back Phil Mack as a full-time coach and, and let him maybe play off the bench and bring in another nine? Or if he wants to go around again, he may want to go around again. But what are you doing up at Seattle looking forward to 2019? Well, you know, um, they're going to get an outside coach. Uh, um, Phil has stated that uh, he, you know, I think he's going to focus on playing next year. Um, also, potentially, there might be a Canadian team in Major League Rugby next year. So it'll be interesting to see what some of those Canadians end up doing um but they're going to bring in a coach and i think that's going to be critical to um what happens i think that the the challenge or, or you know one of the things that was true for seattle was that they actually used the least number of players of anyone in the league they used 33 so you know hatting was a big loss they obviously lost um barkwell and mac and um uh Stoller for some of the Canadian tests. Stoller was injured at the end, but they actually had a very, very small squad. They didn't have a backup for Phil Mack. Um, they, I don't think they really had a quality backup for Shalom Saniola when he went down. I'm not sure that they have a backup for Matt Turner. So not only are they um, one of the more mature teams, they, they don't have much depth. So it'll be interesting to see what Seattle does to start creating that depth there's very good rugby in BC and in Seattle. I think that the um, the the opportunities are gonna are gonna be there, and I think some of those players will make a decision to retire. I think for some of them that have jobs, and you know, it's been a real stretch. We'll finish on a high, but I think most of them will come back. But I still think they need to find another ten players that can really provide the depth and some competition. Well, here's the two things to consider up there, Pete. They just signed an agreement with Adivis, which gives them uh, a massive pipeline to youth rugby, not only in the Pacific Northwest, but around the country. They've been holding camps around the country for you know the last few years pretty successfully. It's a huge database of players that they're going to have access to now. Hey, you know, you're at camp down in Florida with us. You're a great athlete. We want to bring you out on a uh, academy contract to Seattle give you a shot at the seawalls, you know, that, that's all in front of them. The second piece of the puzzle for them is their agreement with the Canterbury Crusaders down in New Zealand. Now, maybe more on the resource side of things and players, but there's also that opportunity as we see Ben Fodden going to Rooney, there may be that opportunity as you see some uh, Canterbury Crusaders. Uh, I'm just going to throw a name out there, Israel Dag, who's at the back end of his career and maybe looking – you know, a guy who's done well, has yeah. done well with his money, yep. looking for a challenge. He has a big social media presence, and the USA is a big social media market. 
And, you know, this is, uh, I mean, that's, that may be something you may hear about here in the next couple of months is a Israel DAG type player coming over from Canterbury as well. So well, yeah, keep absolutely. your eye on that one. And, and I've heard from a, um, a few of uh, my friends from Europe who are talking about like the MLR being a little bit like the MLS, right? It can be a place where a player can come. They're 32, they're 33. They do have some good rugby in them, but they also want to, you know, they have some coaching background and there's a lot of opportunity over here. So I think that it'll be interesting. I think what we're going to see in Major League Rugby as teams like Seattle look to provide depth is either the young sort of 18 to 20-year-old that um, a place like Canterbury wants to get them some experience, give them 16, 18 games of some good rugby, give them the experience and get them rounded. And then, you know, the 32, 34-year-old who's coming to the end of their career but can really provide some leadership and coaching. And so, you know, you're right, that deal with Adivus for Seattle, I think, is going to be really powerful, both in terms of players and in terms of coaching resources. I mean, Adivus provided a lot of the high performance and even some on-field coaching for Seattle this season. Okay, before we close the book on 2018 altogether, what was your highlight of the season? I know you like highlights. I try to keep it to maybe <laughs> two or three. You know, I always ask this of other people. And um, so, like, the highlight, Dan, so one of my big highlights was doing the very first game in Seattle with you. And, and, and the highlight for me was uh, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I think Bobby Skinstad was there for that game, right? Um, yep. Uh, so meeting Bobby Skinstad was cool. But also, like, sitting around. So my first game, I was pretty nervous. But mainly sitting around and seeing these Seawolf fans go crazy. It was nuts. We, we were up there and we were like, there is really something here. So that was sort of like the first time I was like, wow, this MLR thing uh, was, you know, was really real. And I think that first game for me is going to stay with me for a very, very long time. That's it? Just the one? Oh, man. Um, I'm not encouraging more here. I'm just asking. So, okay, so, so this is going to be a very technical one. Um, when uh, Dallin and I, we uh, were doing our first game in San Diego, I think it was like week eight or week nine. I can't remember who we were playing against. But we did the opening segment in one take and nailed it. So for those of you that are listening, we actually um, tape uh, the first part of the show and a uh, um, little peek behind the curtain. And, uh, and, and we nailed that. And I just remember sort of, I think that was the first time I really nailed everything the first time. Although I think we may have done it once Dan before, but you know, I can't remember that one. Oh, okay. It's okay. <laughs> What's your highlights? What are the things right. you're going to remember from this season? You mentioned the Seawolves thing. That one has to go in there. I wasn't thinking about that at first, but what they did up there was the, uh, the first CBS game you and I did up there was Glendale, Seattle. Uh, it was raining, it was wet, it was kind of a miserable night there and there were a uh, full house, I mean, standing room only and they were so loud and it was uh, just vibrating off that grandstand, which reminds me of some of the old European grounds that were, they had the, uh, you know, with the, the rainy weather in Seattle. The corrugated roof, right? And it yes, had a full wrap. yes. Right. And I... I Played a couple of seasons over in France, and there was some of the stadiums were like that. You know, they would only get maybe ten, twelve thousand people to these games, but it sounded like 
you know, you were in, in the old Coliseum with 100,000 people because the noise would vibrate and it'd bounce off. And that's what it felt like in Seattle. I mean, there were times where we were in the uh, in the box up there and I'm just like thinking, they're going to tear this place apart. Like this thing's going to fall down. It, it was getting so loud. So that was a great experience, especially in a new league, in a new, basically a new city for, for professional rugby as well. Uh, the second was, and this is a big one too, it's, watching players that we'd never really seen much or heard much of before. And they may have done, you know, some All-American stuff in college and things like that, but they've never really had this kind of platform to express themselves and show themselves. And, you know, you look at guys like getting to know Billy Dolitahu a little better and just what an amazing young kid he is, what a great talent he is, but just a better person and wanting him to be successful. Uh, kids like Devin Short down in uh, San Diego. I mean, what would have Devin Short done without Major League Rugby? He'd be in Vegas, just, you know, playing club rugby maybe, but he came, he backed himself, he came out, had a shot, and, you know, he had such a great year. And I mean, you could name a player from every club the same, yeah. the same and, way. And, and I agree with you. It's been, it's been great to watch players grow into this league. Like, my favourite is Matt Houston. Um, out of Nolo. I mean, I ended up doing, I think, three weekends in a row with Nolo, just watching him improve each game. And this is a guy that was playing D2 rugby in Charlotte. And you've got to wonder, like, I, I know we have concerns and we'll talk next year about it, sorry, next week um, about the future of the league and people have concerns about player depth. But you've got to wonder how many Matt Houstons and Devon Shorts are out there. You know, how many guys that are playing you know, D, D2, D3 rugby that really are talented and, and are able to play. And now Major League Rugby gives them an opportunity to do that. So I agree with you there. I mean, I think that watching some of these players and grow into it, and actually, honestly, meeting the players has been one of the highlights. Every time there hasn't been a single player that, um, that I've met and I've talked to that hasn't lived to what we believe rugby's core values are. And I think... You know, if, if there's one thing that I, I'm most proud of, which might be different than a memory, Dan, is I honestly think that Major League Rugby and the players and the coaches and the staffs and those of us that are involved in the production have presented the game of rugby well to the American sporting public. And in particular, we've presented a game that has certain values that I think are important. And I think that's been expressed every time we've done one of our shows. Let me just wipe away the tear that's rolling down my cheek. That was beautifully said, Mr. Steinberg. Well, that, uh, that will wrap up this show for us. But next week, we'll talk a little bit more about expansion in Major League Rugby and may even have a scoop or two for you. Also, Nick Benson will join the show, the Deputy Commissioner, plus a couple of other surprise interviews that we're trying to line up as well. So you have to come in next week. But Pete... Give the, uh, give the fans at home how they uh, find us, subscribe, like. You're good at all that stuff. Give that a little drum for us. Yeah, so, you know, as we get into the off-season, we're, we're, you know, next week is probably the last of our regular um, podcast. So if you want to catch us when we're on, please make sure that you subscribe, whether it's at Stitcher or iTunes or Google Play, wherever you get your podcast, please subscribe. Please rate us. Um, we appreciate everyone that's given us a rating so far. That helps other people find this podcast. And uh, we appreciate everyone listening in. So it's been you know, a great season, Dan. I'm already excited for next year. I know plans are underway. And I think next week's going to be a really interesting podcast because I think we'll be able to get some scoops and some information that others do not have 
when we get the right people on. Sounds good, Pete. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll get one done next week, and we'll talk to you then. Till then, good night, goodbye.